1984, an Iranian man in Iran named Mehdi was arrested for turning from Islam to faith in Christ. And after nine years, nine years in prison, some of that in solitary confinement, he was convicted of apostasy and he was sentenced to death by the Islamic court. And he wrote a defense to the court. And I want you to hear it. Not the entirety of it, but what he wrote, I think, is a remarkable example of the kind of boldness that God calls God's people to have. He said this, I am a Christian. As a sinner, I believe Jesus has died for my sins on the cross, and by his resurrection and victory over death, has made me righteous in the presence of the Holy God. In response to this kindness, he has asked me to deny myself and be his fully surrendered follower. And not to fear people, even if they kill my body, but rather rely on the creator of life who has crowned me with the crown of mercy and compassion. I would rather have the whole world against me, but know that the almighty God is with me. The God of Daniel, who protected his friends in the fiery furnace, has protected me for nine years in prison. And all the bad happenings have turned out for our good and gain, so much so that I am filled to overflowing with joy and thankfulness. To know him means to know eternal life. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Isn't that amazing? That's incredible. Yeah, I think we can applaud that. Praise God for such faith. But if you hear that story and you think to yourself, I couldn't do that. There's no way I could respond to that way. I would say, you're right, you can't. Not on your own, nobody can. But that's the kind of power, that's the kind of boldness that is available to every child of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not just at the end of your life, but every day of your life. Every day of our lives, that kind of boldness is available. So where does that boldness come from? How do we get it? That's really what we're gonna answer this morning in our passage in Acts chapter four. But first, I wanna make explicit an assumption that I am making throughout this sermon. No true follower of Jesus wants to be a spineless coward in their faith. No amens? Thank you. No true follower of Jesus wants to be, desires to be, longs to be a spineless coward when it comes to sharing their faith. Put another way, every true believer, every true follower of Jesus has a growing desire to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because God put that desire in them. It's not something they had to manufacture. God did that. He put that desire in us. You realize that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you become a new creation. The old is done, the new has come. Your old way of living, your old way of thinking about things, those things have been replaced. 
And God now gives you the desires of your heart, meaning he puts in you the desires that align with his desires for you. And one of those desires is to live your life boldly for Jesus Christ and to proclaim him boldly as well. Let's look at what God says that he does through his people in the book of Ezekiel. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that incredible? That's what the work of God is in our lives. When God saves someone, he doesn't just rescue them from the penalty of hell. He begins to transform them into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. You don't get salvation without transformation, or what the Bible calls sanctification, because the God who saves is the God who sanctifies. That's his goal, is to make us more like his son all the time. And he gives us the Holy Spirit who moves us to follow God's laws, including the command to boldly tell others about Jesus. And so I take from that that one of the biggest hindrances that God's people have to sharing their faith boldly is fear including fear in, in all aspects of obeying the Lord. True followers of Christ want to be bold. They want to live their lives sacrificially for Christ. They want to fully yield themselves to the Lord, but at times we're afraid of what that might mean. Will it cost me my job or this relationship? Will I be mocked? Some of you, if you are honest this morning, you would say, you know, overcoming all obstacles to boldly proclaiming who Jesus is, is not really all that important to me. It's just not. If that's the case, then you know you're, you're not showing evidence of God's work in your life. It's quite possible that you don't know the Lord. In fact, I would say if you were to honestly say, I don't have an interest in sharing the gospel. I'm not interested in overcoming the obstacles to doing that. Then you're probably not a follower of Christ, not because you don't measure up, but because that's the work that God does in your life, if you know him, if you are born again. And by your own standard, that's not true of you. I don't say that flippantly. You know, the truth is that none of us can know another person's heart for God, right? All we can know is what they say and what they don't say, what they desire and what they don't desire, and how they handle sin and temptation, what they're passionate about. Those those things reveal the hidden motives of the heart, the Bible says. But you know what? There's hope. There is great hope. There's hope for God's people who too often give in to fear. When God encourages us to do something, we're like, ah, I just don't feel it, Lord. I don't feel like I can do that. And we just kind of slink back. There's hope for us. And there's hope for those of you this morning who aren't sure if you're followers of Christ or not. You hear the stories of people who are willing to sacrifice anything to make Jesus known, like our brother in Iran. And you say, I, I, I can't relate to that. But there's hope for you too by trusting in the Lord today. So here's the key that I would like you to walk away with from today. And you're gonna hear me say it a few times. Boldness comes from yielding to the Holy Spirit, not giving in to your fears. That's where boldness comes from. It comes from we us yielding to the Holy Spirit, not giving in to our fears. You know, fear is natural, right? 
In scary or dangerous situations, fear is natural. But we're told by God not to give in to that fear, not to let that control what we do, to recognize that God is in control, that our lives are in his hands. And so we yield to the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit living inside of God's people is moving you. I like to think at times he's pushing you to do God's will, right? He's pushing you in the direction of obedience. And essentially yielding to him means stop fighting him. Stop fighting him. Give him, give him the, the right of way in your life. Stop resisting him. Our passage this morning is found in Acts 4, verses 23 through 31. If you want to look at the blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 912. Our text is actually largely a prayer. Most of the text is a prayer to God for boldness in witnessing. And it follows with God's gracious response at the end. But before we we dive into our passage, I need to walk you through quickly Acts chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4 because that really is, is part of our story. And they're, uh, they're obviously very tightly connected. So about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the day before we start the story, the apostles Peter and John were on their way to the temple uh, for a time of prayer. And as they were going to the temple, they, they came upon a gate, a gate called Beautiful, and they saw a man that was crippled there. And he was brought there every day, and he was begging for money. And they looked at him, And they said to him, look at us. He said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Just just picture that for a minute. The Bible says this man was over 40 years old. Every day they they would carry him there. They would set him down in front of the uh, gate just so he could make a living, so that he could beg and have something to eat. And they said, get up, rise up, and walk. And you know, he did. He actually did. But he did more than that. According to verse 8 of chapter 3, he didn't just get up and walk. It says, and leaping, leaping, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And you and I would leap if we hadn't walked for 40 years too, right? His ankles were strengthened. His legs were strengthened. He finally could look at people in the eye, and all of a sudden, he's leaping and jumping for joy. And naturally, as you expect, the people around, around them, they were utterly astonished, the Bible says. And they ran. They literally ran to be by him and Peter and John. And Peter, seeing that the crowd was gathered around him, he decided to preach. And he preached a message that's very similar to the one that he preached in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. He told them, the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that you worship, the God that you know, he healed this man. Because they were looking at them as if maybe they had some special powers. But don't look at us. Your God, the God that you worship, he has healed this man through his holy servant, Jesus. And you have to wonder if they didn't gulp at that point. Jesus? Because then the next thing Peter says is, You killed the author of life that God raised from the dead. Another bold sermon by Peter. A boldness that we didn't see before Pentecost. A boldness that was not true of Peter before the Holy Spirit filled him. But then Peter spoke graciously to them because we have to understand that boldness doesn't equal meanness. 
right? You can be bold and should be bold, but still be loving. And that's really what Peter did. Peter then held out the gospel for them. He wanted them to understand that they had an opportunity to repent, to turn from their sins, to trust in Jesus as Messiah, to be forgiven and experience God's blessing. He quoted Old Testament passages to show that what he was saying was true. And many, many believed, thousands of men and women believed through the preaching, the bold preaching of God's word. This obviously upset the religious leaders. You know, if you just crucified somebody, you don't want people walking around telling everybody, oh, these guys are being healed in Jesus' name, right? Undoubtedly, they were, they were very upset. That's a little risky. So they arrested Peter and John. They put him in prison overnight because it was already kind of late. The next day, they assembled them together, Peter and John and the man that they healed, before the, the elders and the, uh, the scribes. And they said to them, what, what power, by what name do you do this? Who gave you the authority to heal this man? How did this all come about? Here's what Peter said. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified, he always seems to like to add that whenever he's mentioning Jesus, Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. The religious leaders do not appear to have appreciated Peter's response to their question. They were likely angry and afraid. But there wasn't much that they could do because they couldn't deny the fact that this miracle had happened. And already a lot of people knew about it. So they did what they did best. They threatened Peter and John and said, you don't, can't speak anymore about this, this man, Jesus. Go out of here. Don't mention his name anymore. And of course, their answer is classic, right? They said this, whether it is right in the sight of God to obey you rather than to God, you must judge. I love that part right there, right? You're the religious leaders. You'll have to help me figure out, should I obey you or should I obey God? I mean, that must have been a slap right in the face. But then they said this, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Isn't that a great testimony to be true of your life? I can't help but speak about what God has done. That, my friends, is boldness. It comes from yielding to the Holy Spirit and not giving in to your fears. So the question is, how does that happen? How do we get that? And I believe our, our passage this morning gives us three answers how the Holy Spirit makes us bold in our witness for Christ. And I want to say this at the beginning. For those of you who like to watch a sermon with a clock right next to you, you should know that the first point is significantly longer than the next two points, okay? But I promise you that I am going to get you out of here today before the last runner crosses the finish line sometime later tonight. First answer, the Holy Spirit helps us to rest in the sovereignty of God. Helps us to rest in the sovereignty of God. Let's look at our passage here. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together 
against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Notice that when they were released, they went to their friends. And it's kind of a reminder of what Pastor Michael talked about last week, about no solo Christianity, no flying alone as a Christian. Even John and Peter, apostles, went back to their friends because we need one another. So what does it mean that God is sovereign? It means that he is the supreme authority and he is in control of everything. I love what Psalm 115 verse 3 says. It says that our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. He is in complete control. But as you look around the world, you realize there's a lot of things that don't please God. and They're happening all the time. How is he in control? And it's true. God is displeased, even angry with a lot of what's going on in the world. And yet in his wisdom, under his sovereignty, he is still in control of everything. And he's working everything out for his purposes, for his ultimate plan. He is in complete control of everything. You know, when I first wrote this point down, I actually, I actually wrote down, instead of rest in God's sovereignty, it was recognize God's sovereignty. And then I quickly realized how weak and inaccurate that was. Recognizing God's sovereignty doesn't mean that you're resting in it. And what God wants for us, and what we see in the book of Acts, is the disciples resting in the sovereignty of God. In fact, that's what it says at the beginning of their prayer in verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You realize that God can be rightly addressed in a variety of different ways. And you see that in the Bible. People addressing God differently based on how they're going to worship the Lord or a character of, uh, of God that they're trusting in at the moment. Here, they identify him as the creator and the supreme authority over everything. And then they go on to quote David from Psalm 2 in pointing out the futility of men opposing this God who created them, who created everything, and who knows in advance what they're going to do. I mean, how do you oppose a God like that? Foolishly. That's how you do it. I mean, imagine sticking your puny little fist in someone's face, in God's face, saying, well, I, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. It's ridiculous if we see it that way. Later on, that's not quoted in our passage, but later on in Psalm 2, God's response to the raging of the nations, to them opposing God and his anointed, it says this in verses 4 and 5. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God's not scared. He's not moved by that. It's utterly foolish. And so they're resting in the sovereignty of God because they know their enemies can't do anything to them apart from God's will. Look again at verse 28. After identifying Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and even the people of Israel in opposing God's anointed, Jesus, they rest in God's sovereignty. They affirm that even Jesus' death, as horrible as it was, was all according to God's plan. God's hand and plan had predestined what had taken place. So they're not just recognizing the sovereignty of God, they're resting in it. They are taking great comfort in the fact that God is in control of all things. And it is empowering them to bold witness for Christ. So what does that mean? 
What does it really mean to rest in the sovereignty of God? I, I hope I can make this as plain as possible because I, I can tell you, in my life, I have seen the benefits of this over and over again. I'm seeing it even now in recognizing my life, the life of, of, of my wife and our four children. Our lives are in God's hands. And the peace, even in the midst of difficulties, that that brings is priceless. I am confident that if I showed you a high-quality photo of a hammock, you would recognize that it was a hammock. Whether it was hung between two trees or was on its own stand, you'd say, well, that's a hammock. You wouldn't confuse it with a ham sandwich. But you would also recognize that there's a difference between recognizing a hammock and resting in a hammock, right? One's an intellectual exercise. The other is an experience of such pleasure and peace that you begin to think that life is incomplete without it. Resting in a hammock gives the kind of relaxation and pleasure that few things in life can. I think resting, I think a hammock is like an extended hug from a beloved family member. I used to have a hammock, actually. And I want you to imagine resting in a hammock on a, on a nice summer day with a cool breeze blowing over your body. And you begin to realize that, you know, there's nothing really as important right now as me and this hammock. And nothing could dis dissuade you from that. Nothing could destroy your peace. One of your kids could scream out the window and say, Dad, I flunked English again. And you'd be like, <laughs> English. When are you going to use that as an adult? I think the only thing that could mess up your peace and tranquility is if your wife yelled out the window, you missed the last three payments, they're coming to repossess the hammock. That would do it. That would do it. Why are we spending so much time talking about hammocks? Because at least for me, the imagery of resting in a hammock helps me understand what it means to rest in the sovereignty of God. Did you know that the Hebrew word for rest is hammock? It's not. I just made that up. <laughs> I, 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 lo I looked it up. I wished it was true. It's not. It would be so cool. I, I don't actually know what the word is, but uh, I don't know if they have a word in Hebrew for hammock. But you're not going to forget that. You're not going to forget that. Hopefully it will remind you that resting in the sovereignty of God is like resting in a comfortable hammock. You can have perfect peace. So how do we do that? Practically, how do we rest in the sovereignty of God? I think one, you remind yourself. You remind yourself of what is true about your heavenly Father. You remind yourself that God is in control of every insect, every raindrop, every enemy, every fiery furnace, every storm, every politician, every prison guard, everything. Your heavenly Father is in control of everything, big and small. And he is controlling it to work it all out for your eternal good. If you believe that, if you trust in that, if you rest in that, how can you not have peace? Everything that happens in my life, good or bad, expected or unexpected, fair or unfair, painful or joyful, my Heavenly Father is in control. He's sovereign. And he has promised me he is working it all out for my eternal good. And yes, bad things are going to happen in a world that is broken and fallen and in rebellion against God. But God promises that he will never leave you. He'll always be by your side, always helping you. He promises you that he loves you. 
And he promises you that your suffering is temporary and that eternal glory awaits. I don't know. I think about those things and I'm like, yeah, that's good. I can rest in that. I can rest in that. At the beginning, I mentioned the story of of Mehdi from Iran. He took comfort in the fact that God protected Daniel's friend in the book of Daniel from the fiery furnace. But don't forget what they said to the king. He had threatened to kill them if they didn't bow down and worship this golden idol that he had made. But listen to what they said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, I mean, stop there. Even if he does not, we believe that he will. We're looking forward to the fact that he will. But you know what? Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We're not going to do that. They trusted, they rested in the sovereignty of God even though their lives were at risk. And even though there was no guarantee that they would get out alive. That's resting in the sovereignty of God. And then look what happened. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You know what I think? I think the number one reason that you and I can rest in the sovereignty of God is that no matter what is going on in our lives, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in the midst of whatever we're going through. And that's why we can trust him. It's amazing to think about that. I mean, that illustration is given in Daniel to comfort and to encourage all of us. Our lives are in his hands. If you recognize that, if you rest in that, it will save you from a thousand cares and worries. Because boldness comes from yielding to the Holy Spirit, not from giving in to our fears. The second answer to how the Holy Spirit helps us to be bold witnesses for Christ is that he leads us to a place where we resolve to put the gospel first. You and I in our lives, we resolve to put the gospel first. Let's look at verse 29. That's exactly what they did. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Do you know what's missing from their prayers? From that prayer, what's missing? Things like destroy our enemies, slaughter them, wipe them out. Get us out of this trial. Make it end right away. Or just make this easier, God. This is tough. Make it easier. They did say, look upon their threats, Lord. You know, I think that's their way of saying, Lord, we're going to give this to you. Your job as the sovereign Lord of the universe is to look over your people. We see these threats. We're reminding you about these threats. So do with those what you will according to your purpose and plan. But we have a job to do. 
We are to be bold in our witness for the gospel. Give us the power to do just that. We saw the same thing earlier when Peter and John were threatened by the religious leaders. You know, if, if they didn't shut up about Jesus. And what did they say? Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. But again, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's almost like they're saying, you know, even if we wanted to stop talking about Jesus, we can't shut up. It's too good. It's going to come out of us no matter what. You know, the Apostle Paul said something similar. And, and sometimes I, I think I've missed this before. The Apostle Paul talks about how the power that he served in wasn't from himself, it was from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 2 says this, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Have you ever thought about that? The Apostle Paul. At times he ministered, what he said was, with great fear and trembling. Boy, if he can do it, anybody can do it, right? I can serve the Lord with great tr fear and trembling. That's easy. I mean, I picture Paul sometimes as a guy with boldness all the time. And I think, well, maybe that's his personality, just kind of a bold guy. You see, no, I, I was afraid. I was weak. I was trembling. But the power that you saw through me was the Holy Spirit. You and I can rest in the sovereignty of God when we put the gospel first in our lives. That's what God calls us to do. When our commitment to God and to his mission is greater than our commitment to our job, to our hobbies, to our retirement, even to our families. Our commitment to the gospel is preeminent above all those things. When that happens, you and I are exactly where God wants us to be. And when we are there, there is nothing that can stop us from being bold. When we rest in the sovereignty of God, when we desire the advance of the gospel, we resolve to put the gospel first in our lives, then nothing can stop us from being bold. Remember what, what Mehdi wrote to this Islamic court that sentenced him to death. I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, but am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Do you think a lot about what Judgment Day is going to be like when you stand before the Lord? Wouldn't you love for that to be recited publicly? That Larry, that Susan, was wholeheartedly committed to the gospel, more so than his or her life. I mean, you don't want God asking you how, why you watched so much Netflix, right? You want to live a life that honors God. What excites me, and I know what excites many of you, is that the life that you and I want to live as followers of Jesus Christ, this bold life that risks whatever God calls us to risk for the advance of the gospel, to tell lost men and women about Jesus, that is a life that is available to us. That is a life that we want and the one that is available to us every single day. It is a life of value. It is a life of power. 
It is a life of eternal significance for which we will never be ashamed. And I want you to understand that you can have that life regardless of your circumstances. You may be in a wheelchair all the time. At this stage of life, you may be changing diapers all day. You may have two jobs that you hate. You may be looking for work. It doesn't matter. Your circumstances do not matter. Put the gospel first. Put the gospel first. Remember a few weeks ago, amen, let's put, put the gospel first. And let's walk out of here and let's remember that. It's so absolutely critical to everything that we do. How we raise our kids, the jobs that we pursue, how we use the gifts that God's given us, everything in life. Put the gospel first. Remember what, what uh, Pastor Michael said a few weeks ago. If the, um, you should remember it, and I'll remember as soon as I find it on here. If the mission of your life is not the mission of the church, you're wasting your life. So make the mission of your life, the mission that Jesus has given his church. The third and final answer to how the Holy Spirit makes us bold witnesses for Christ is that he leads us to request God's help. He leads us to request God's help. We need to rest in the sovereignty of God. We need to resolve to make the gospel first in our lives, ahead of everything else. And then third, we need to request God's help, simply asking our Heavenly Father for the assistance that we need. And that's exactly what they did in verse 30 of our passage. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They went to their father and said, this is what we need. We need your help. Asking God for help is as basic as it gets in the Christian life, right? I, I realize that. But here's the problem. There are times when you and I don't ask God for help because we don't think we need it. You know, we're kind of doing our own thing and we don't perceive any kind of special circumstance where I better stop and ask the Lord for help. I've always appreciated those, those more mature believers in my life who when we're talking about something, I'm sharing something, they're sharing something, they just say, let's just pray about that right now. Let's just ask the Lord for his wisdom, for his guidance, for his grace right now. But sometimes we don't think to ask for his help. And there are other times, worse than, than thinking we don't need it, we don't even think to ask for it. We just don't think to ask. Like, what are we thinking? What are we thinking that we could do these things on our own? God knows exactly what you need to be faithful, what you need to be a bold witness for Christ. He knows exactly what you need, and he will grant it when you humbly go to him and ask him. It's really a remarkable thing. He also knows what is necessary to advance the gospel in the lives of those people that you love and that you're praying for and that you're sharing with. And in this verse, the believers were asking that God would do miracles in Jesus' name so that the gospel would go forth. They wanted God's power to be put on display. And that's exactly what happened. You read through the book of Acts and you see regularly how God's power was put on display and many people came to faith in Christ as the gospel was preached. And God still puts his power on display. Right Here's the tricky part for some of us. We don't see those healings all the time, those signs and wonders. And yes, it does look different in different times and in different places. But God's power is still regularly on display. I would say a man condemned to death, writing a letter like Medi did, is God's power put on display. That's a miracle. Nobody can expect that. Nobody looks at that and thinks, well, that's natural. He's got that in himself. 
You and I put on display the power of God in miraculous ways through our obedience. You know, one of the signs, one of the actual more kind of a dramatic signs that I've uh, heard about over the years regularly is God even today using visions and dreams to bring people to himself. You hear that, I think, especially among Jewish people and among Muslims, where they get a vision that either leads them to someone who's going to proclaim the gospel to them and leads them to, to go seek out the Bible. I mean, if you want, you can look them up on, uh, on the internet. These stories are on the internet. If you don't know what the internet is, just Google it. <laughs> but in our desire to be obedient and to be bold, we should ask the Lord for whatever it is that it's necessary for us to be faithful. And you realize that God invites us to do just that, right? Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, with confidence, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God invites us to do that. He welcomes us to do that. My friends, you and I are called to be the church, to be the body of Christ, to represent Jesus around the world, to help people who are far from God see that there is a path for them back through his son. We do that not only with what we say about him, but how we live. And when our lives are in alignment with what we say about Jesus, it's powerful. And so you may need to ask yourself and ask the Lord this morning, does my life align well with what it is that I proclaim about Jesus? And if not, ask him for help. We need God's help to do that well. And he invites us to ask for that help. There's a great verse, many of you are familiar with in Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's another promise of God providing the strength that we need. You know, here's an, a wonderful thing. God not only knows what it is that we need, and he wants to give us what we need, exactly what we need, but he does so in a way that expands our joy in the Lord. And that's what Nehemiah says. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. You want to be strong in the Lord? You get that by being joyful in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is your strength. How are you going to be bold? Have joy in the Lord. What makes you bold? I think resting in the sovereignty of God and putting the gospel first. When we do those things, we have joy in the Lord. Our focus is on him. And that's exactly what happened in verse 31. Let's take a look. They received God's power as a result. Verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Man, I love that. I want that for our church. I want that in my life. Whenever I see the Spirit of God working in the lives of my kids, there's nothing like that. I could have a bad day. And when one of my children does something that acknowledges the, the goodness of God, they, they say something about what God did for them at school, an answered prayer of some kind, it gives me great, great joy. What happened here is almost like a, a, a redoing of Pentecost, like Pentecost 2. God powerfully demonstrated his, his pleasure, his acceptance of their prayer, and he answered it by filling them with the Holy Spirit. And what we're told is that they continued to preach the gospel with boldness, the very thing you and I are called to do. Now, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is actually different than being saved or born again. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is an empowering 
that you and I as God's people need regularly. I love how Pastor John Piper defined being filled with the Holy Spirit. He said this, being filled with the Spirit means basically having great joy in God. And since the Bible teaches that the joy of the Lord is our strength, it also means that there will be power in this joy for overcoming besetting sins and for boldness in witness. And I would say that's it. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, something that we should ask God for every day, we have this overpowering joy in God that inspires us and moves us and motivates us in such a way that we can't shut up. We, we have to tell people about the Lord because it's bubbling over inside of us. Now, I realize that that's not true of us all the time, but I would say it should be true of us far more often than it is. And as you and I wake up every morning and say, God, fill me with your spirit. Give me this kind of joy. Give me this kind of boldness so that no matter what opposition comes your way, it can't stop you. You can't help but tell people about the Lord. You know, you look at the New Testament. God's people seem to be happier in prison than in without. They were rejoicing when they were beaten. They were rejoicing when they got sent to prison. They were rejoicing when their stuff was taken. It didn't matter to them. They were maligned and mistreated because they were followers of Jesus, but it didn't diminish their joy. In fact, it seems like they, they walked away at times more joyful that God considered them worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. That's the boldness that I'm seeking. Is that the boldness that you want in your life? Don't, don't feel rebuked by it too much, right? Maybe the Holy Spirit is rebuking you and saying, yeah, you don't have that, but I want to give it to you, and it's available to us. The power to boldly and clearly proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord in spite of the obstacles. To let those people that we know who are far from God, who we love, who Jesus really is. And if that is the desire of your heart, and I trust that it is, because if you're a follower of Christ, he's put it there, then rest, truly rest in the sovereignty of God. He's in control of everything. And resolve to put the gospel first ahead of everything else in your life. And then request God's help. Just ask him for what you need. He knows what you need. And he knows how to accompany what you say with the power of the gospel to transform lives. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people said about you, boy, he or she, they love Jesus. It's so clear. And they love others as well. And they serve others so sacrificially. And they're so generous. And they're so kind. And they're... They, they take more concern about me than my own family does. They are bold, but loving and humble and winsome in their witness for Christ. Do you want that set of you? Do you want that set of you? You do, right? I mean, you don't want people saying about you after you've worked with them for five years, you're a Christian? No, I didn't know. You've probably said that to somebody before. I've heard that before. Thankfully, they weren't talking to me or another pastor on staff, I should clarify. We want to be known as those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who boldly proclaim him, not only with our lips, but with our lives. And we can do that with the power that God gives. You know, many of you are already doing that. You know, we have a track rack that's right behind uh, the wall over there in Memorial Hall. And it's full of all these kind of gospel tracks that help people understand who Jesus is. And we're refilling them all the time because Many of you are taking them and passing them out to other people. 
A number of you are involved in Bible studies where you're inviting non-Christian friends to just study God's Word with you. Others are regularly inviting people that you know to church or to Summer Blast or to Fall Fest or Kids Jam or the evening service, whatever it might be. You're praying for the lost. You've got your list and your map and you're committing these people to the Lord. And I would just say that with the power of God's Spirit, let's excel at this. Let Moody Church be known as a church that is bold in their gospel presentation. Why? Because we are overwhelmed by the power of what God has done in our lives, and we love the people that are around us. I have to say in closing, you know, we've talked a lot about signage at the church. You know, you talk about inside signage to make sure that people know where the bathrooms are. But we've talked about outside signage in, in ways that would help the community know who we are. I recently heard that, that uh, I think it was from our picnic, some of the people were, were saying, hey, this is a picnic for Moody Church, and uh, uh, you can join us if you'd like. So, oh, Moody Church, where's Moody Church? So, well, it's that large brick building right over there on the corner. Oh, that's a church? I thought that was part of the museum. Somebody actually said that. You know, signs are great, and by God's grace, we're going to put up more signs. But God's people are the signs. You and I can more powerfully display who Jesus is and the power of the gospel than some electronic sign on the wall and some banner on the fence across the street. You are the signs that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is powerful, that he loves sinners and is inviting them to, them, to himself. You are the signs. So Moody Church, we need to be those signs. Our lives, our marriages, our families, our work ethic, our service, they all need to reflect with boldness and with clarity who Jesus is because that's exactly what this community needs and with God's help that we can do it. Remember, boldness comes from yielding to the Holy Spirit who's moving us, who's pushing us towards greater obedience. It comes from yielding to him not giving in to our fears. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I, I want to confess on my own behalf and behalf of my brothers and sisters here and those who are joining us online that at times we are afraid. You have called us to speak and we have remained quiet. You have called us to be bold and we have been fearful. No more. Father, I pray those days are completely over. We have the power through the Holy Spirit as we yield to the one who dwells inside of us and who is moving us to be bold and clear in our witness. We have the power to be bold. And Father, I pray that for Moody Church because Old Town and Lincoln Park and the Gold Coast and River North and every neighborhood in this city so desperately needs to see it. They see the opposite. We need to be living signs of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, make it true, we pray. Make it true in Jesus' name. Amen.